Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Britain economics editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode will mostly be about the consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The conflict means huge disruption for global trade in food. If you haven't been watching wheat prices, they are going through the roof. And on wheat in Russian Ukraine, I'll have a conversation with Joe Glauber, the former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But first, we're going to talk about the future of our Trade Talks podcast. Now, the origin story for this podcast is that Chad and I recorded a pilot for an entirely different show, a different podcast, a few years ago, and it just got horrible, horrible feedback, like really, really bad. I think one of the responses was, by the end, I had lost the will to live. And so I came away from that thinking, great, we should definitely make this its own show and also do it every week. And so Trade Talks was born. And uh, 159 episodes later, we should say thank you so much to our listeners for actually listening. And before you freak out, no, Trade Talks is not ending. The show will go on. My plan is to put out episodes probably not once a week, but certainly a lot more frequently than I've managed to do over the last four months. That is the good news. The worst news is that I am officially withdrawing from the role of Trade Talks co-host. Now I'm not covering trade for The Economist anymore, it's time to move on. But look, there might be some upside. Chad might be able to reintroduce the incredibly unfunny double underscore joke at the end. Okay, now now get on with the episode. I'll be back at the end to do a a final sign-off. Let's begin by providing a quick update on Russia's war with Ukraine and where things stand. On February 21st, Russian President Vladimir Putin began the conflict by recognizing the independence of two Ukrainian territories. On February 24th, Putin ordered Russian troops invade Ukraine and start a war. And since February 21st, we've seen a massive barrage of sanctions, first to try to deter and then to penalize Russia for this act of war. The US, UK, European Union, Canada, Japan, financial sanctions export controls on things like semiconductors, some import bans, the US, UK, Canada, and NEU said they wouldn't buy or or they're gonna phase out purchases of Russian oil and gas. Countries have even begun raising their import tariffs on stuff coming in from Russia. But at the moment, none of that has been enough to stop the war. The bombing continues, the fighting is getting worse. And tied into this unspeakable tragedy is a series of looming humanitarian crises. Today, we're going to get into the details of one of those crises, which involves food security. And to help us out, we have a special guest, Joe Glauber. Joe's a senior fellow at IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, and he's formerly the chief economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Hey, Chad. Thanks for having me. Wheat is a big part of this growing food security concern, and so let's start with some wheat for dummies. Wheat is a hugely important crop. You ground it up to make flour, and so it's used for bread, pasta, noodles, cookies, and cakes. The United Nations has estimated that 20% of calories that humans consume comes from wheat. Wheat is grown all over the world. The United States is a major producer with about 13% of global exports. 
Other big producers include Australia, Canada, the European Union, Argentina, so countries pretty far away from the equator. And then also Russia and Ukraine. In fact, Russia and Ukraine are really important. Combined, they make up more than 10% of global wheat production, and in any given year, maybe 25 to 30% of global exports. And so with war, you can start to see the problem. Okay, Joe, so if that's the basics, maybe you can give us some wheat Aggie kind 101. If you're a farmer, how and when do you grow wheat? The two basic types of wheat, if you will, are, are you have fall-planted wheat that typically goes in the ground in the fall, at least in the northern hemisphere, and is harvested early summer. That's about 85% of the wheat grown in the northern hemisphere. So big so-called winter wheat producers are the U.S., the EU, predominantly winter wheat, and parts of Russia, all of those important winter wheat producers. Spring wheats, on the other hand, are planted in the springtime in the northern hemisphere. And the, and the major producers in the northern hemisphere, at least, are Canada, little part of the U.S., about 15% of our wheat is actually spring-planted, about 5% of the EU. And Russia has actually a large portion of their wheat, about 40-some-odd percent of their wheat is spring-planted. And then Kazakhstan, which is also a major spring wheat planter. On top of that, you have a southern hemisphere, and about 20% of what's traded in the world comes out of the southern hemisphere, primarily Argentina and Australia. And that's harvested late fall, early winter, and so much like spring wheat. And so if you look at the two basic periods where wheat's coming onto the market, you have some coming on in the early summer, about 60% of the wheat comes on in the early summer, and about 40% comes on at the late fall, early winter. Okay, so wheat sounds pretty good, pretty globally diversified crop going in the ground at different times of year, uh, different parts around the world. And so that basically takes care of the, say, the, the land and, and the weather. What else are the, the key components to, to being able to grow wheat effectively? You know, wheat, like any other commodity, requires some specialized equipment for combining, for harvesting the wheat. Uh, you need an infrastructure to, to move that wheat from harvest to markets. And you need a lot of fertilizer, which is like a lot of crops, wheat requires nitrogen-based fertilizers and, and other types of fertilizer. Okay, so let's let's dig in a little bit on fertilizer and, and maybe let's go back to, to last year. So 2021, what's going on in the fertilizer market? Fertilizer got expensive. When natural gas prices take, started taking off last year, natural gas is an important feedstock. You make nitrogen-based fertilizers like ammonia and urea out of natural gas. And those prices shot up as well. They particularly shot up in the U.S., but also in places like the EU, which produces a lot of nitrogen-based fertilizer. And then you also had a number of countries put on export restrictions. So China, Russia, those, the, they're very big exporters of things like phosphates and potassium that are, again, essential building blocks into plant production. And those exports restrictions caused further problems in prices. High fertilizer prices aren't great, obviously. But as we head into the, the 2022 season, are there other worries out there for, for the wheat market that you can see? Well, I, I think it's important to remember that even prior to this crisis, the wheat market was seeing very, very strong prices. And last year in the U.S. and in Canada, we had poor production because of droughts in the Northern Plains and in Canada. 
That was also true in the EU, had production problems. And even in, in places like Russia, the production was off a bit. So production was, was down last year. And on top of that, we had very, very strong demand. The good news is we've had a pretty good crop come out of Australia and Argentina that's just now being harvested and, and moving to markets. But overall stock levels, and that's what's left at the end of the year, when, you know, after you've consumed everything that you've harvested, what's left over, the ending stocks, we're down to about 63 days of use. And you have to really go back to 2007-8 to get levels that low. So even prior to the crisis, wheat prices were at the highest levels in nominal terms since 2012. And in real terms, adjusting for inflation, they're the highest since 2007-8. Let's talk about those earlier eras of high wheat prices for, for a moment. And maybe let's go back to the, the summer of 2010, which was the kind of the start of the period that you just mentioned where we had high prices in, in 2012. I remember this 2010 wheat story vividly uh, because I just started working at the White House. And one of the first things I was asked to do when I got there was to write a memo about the drought and wildfires across Russia and Ukraine that were taking place that summer. And because of those, in August of 2010, then Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, he was Prime Minister then, he banned exports of wheat and other grains after basically one-third of Russia's cultivable land was, was reportedly destroyed. So what happened then? Yeah, the 2010 was, was a wild time. And with the, we had a very poor crop in Russia and Ukraine. And it was coming off the 2007-8 period where it had been tight markets then. And what happened was that a number of countries followed Russia and put on bans on exports. And I think we had Argentina at one point and India and uh, certainly uh, Ukraine-restricted exports. So a lot of wheat being restricted from moving to market. And it's sort of like the analogy of being at a football game. You know, the crowd in front of you or the row in front of you stands up and you think, ah, can't see the game. I got to stand up too. And that's exactly what was going on. Countries were acting what they thought in their best interest. That is, let's don't allow exports. That will keep prices low at home. But in fact, you are stabilizing prices for your consumers at the expense of everyone else. And so that went on with, with a number of countries putting on these restrictions. And of course, Who's really hurt by that are those countries who have to import wheat. And now we're importing wheat from a, a reduced supply with very, very high prices. If you look at some of the estimates that were done at the time, I think about 14% or some studies out of the World Bank showed about 14% of exports were tied up in export restrictions at one point or another. Other estimates I've seen have suggested about 30% of the price increase at the time was due to those export restrictions. So they're very destructive in one sense and, again, can only exacerbate these underlying supply and demand situations. So we've got droughts, wildfires export restrictions, fueling high prices, fueling more export restrictions, fueling further high prices. What were some of the political implications of this at the time? Yeah, and I think there you really need to look at North Africa and, and parts of the Middle East. And remember, these are countries that consume a lot of wheat. They Even a country like the U.S., the, our consumption is about 80 kilograms per capita. There you're talking over 120, 150 kilogram per capita. And so they are paying a lot higher prices. 
In some cases, governments were trying to subsidize the wheat and keep those bread prices down. But in other cases, the prices were rising. And that really precipitated a lot of unrest. We remember Arab Spring. I think that there were a lot of underlying reasons for political dissent. But you have to say these food prices were the spark that really started a lot of those riots and other things that we saw. The Arab Spring really was just absolutely amazing time. It was one of the other things I had to, to, to write memos about. Maybe the only good thing to come out of that terrible period was a commitment to better monitor global food supplies. And so we do now have this thing called AMOS, the Agriculture Market Information System. Joe, I know you were at USDA working for the U.S. government at the time this this thing was kicked off and, and started. Tell us about where Amos came from and, and, and what it does and, and what role it might be playing today. Yeah, you know, Amos came out of a 2011 agricultural ministerial for uh, the G20 ag ministers got together, and they were concerned about exactly what you were talking about, the unrest that was primarily in wheat markets. And the concern was particularly over things like export restrictions and what could be done. And one of the thoughts was, well, Let's make sure everyone has full information and so that, that it's not just a panic over what they perceive the market to be, but let's have an objective look at that. So the idea was, let's get the, the best experts from the G20 countries. So pull in the experts from USDA, pull in the experts from FAO, pull in the experts from individual countries. Every month, put together information, balance sheets and other things, and you know, I think Amos actually has been quite successful. I, I can think of a couple of instances. One, 2012-13, we had big drought in North America. There was a lot of initial panic. But I think Amos was able to get together with its members saying, look, markets are moving well. We're expecting big crops in the fall. And I think they helped calm markets. We didn't see any real major export restrictions during that period. Similarly, during COVID, we saw early on a number of countries concerned put on a, a number of export restrictions. Amos met several times during that period, and the, the message was, look, things are working well. There are glitches in the supply chain, as we all know, but this isn't the time to exacerbate that with export restrictions and other things. And, and really, I think by the fall, most of those restrictions had been removed. So I think that's, again, it's a concern now, obviously, with the current crisis. Amos has been meeting and talking about here are the availabilities, here's what's on the market, and hopefully can prevent the same sort of thing that happened in 2007-8 and 2010-11. Let's dig into today's worries about wheat. So Russia invades Ukraine. What are some of the really big underlying concerns for global wheat supplies that'd be tied up with that? So the first question is, we got a planting season coming up that, you know, Ukraine farmers typically are in the fields in April and May, planting things like maize, planting things like sunflower seed, barley, all major crops. And so the real question is, are they going to be able to be in those fields? We know troops are occupying a lot of that area right now. There's issues about can they get inputs? Russia and Belarus are big suppliers of inputs for the for uh, Ukraine. And so you can imagine that if we had tanks rolling through Kansas right now, that would be a big concern about trying to get a crop in. So that's a very immediate concern. Labor. 
All that infrastructure that one needs, are there going to be people being able to do that? Is there going to be fuel available? All of those questions. The window is short on this. This isn't like you have the next eight months. We have a very narrow window that, that farmers are going to be in the fields in April, May, and that's when planning will have to occur. So that's important. The second issue is, can they ship this, whatever they harvest? And remember that we first have to talk about last year's crop. Wheat was harvested in June. Most of that been shipped. About 70% of it that was expected to be exported has been shipped prior to the, the conflict. But right now we have about 30% of that crop that is would be normally destined for export is sitting in silos somewhere, but not being shipped. And we don't know where those, those stocks are necessarily being held or what the status is or anything. But we do know infrastructure is jeopardized, that the ports are blocked. In some cases, there's been some damage. But more importantly, or as important, rail lines, where most of that, the, that those commodities move to ports via rail lines, those rail lines have been cut by troops. That is, the, there's nothing moving along those lines. And so the crops that are harvested, and we have a big wheat crop coming online, typically that will start to be harvested in June, the question is, will it be harvested? Then what will happen to it? Will, will it move to uh, the, the ports? And that's just Ukraine, which is about 10% of, of world exports for wheat. They're already worried about shortages. The government announced a new export license system for wheat on, on March 6th and export bans on, on other products as well. Another 20% of world exports are, are coming out of Russia, which may stop exporting too, but, but not for those reasons. This time, Russia may deliberately use it as a weapon of economic warfare in response to the sanctions that it's being hit with. Already, as a retaliatory action in March, Russia said it would pass a law allowing it to ban exports of commodities. And on March 10th, Russia said it was banning wheat exports even to its partners like Belarus and others in the Eurasian Economic Union. And this just builds on its earlier export restrictions on a lot of these crops. So this is not good. We're talking about potentially taking a huge chunk of wheat exports off of the global market. While wheat is a globally traded commodity, I think we can look back to the 2010-11 experience that, that Joe talked about before in the countries that were impacted strongly by that to see who it is that might likely be hit this time around. So Middle East and North Africa, Egypt, a huge consumer poor countries in, in the region, Yemen, who gets a lot of their wheat through the World Food Program and, and has these humanitarian needs. Other countries in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, poor countries are, could be hit and, and caught up in, in all this as well. So it's definitely something that we're going to need to watch out for. All right, Joe, you've convinced me this is a problem. But on trade talks, we're problem solvers. So let's try to figure this out. Let me pitch to you some, some of my ideas. Um, and you can shoot them down or, or tell them tell me why they won't work. Let me start with the most obvious one. So why don't we just use production subsidies? I mean, over the, the course of the last two years, especially, we've seen a major shift in the United States and European Union and elsewhere about industrial policy. So subsidies for COVID vaccines to create new domestic personal protective equipment, supply chains, even for semiconductors. 
Now, normally for agriculture, we complain desperately about, about farm subsidies, but if ever we were going to say that they were okay, now would seem to be the time. So take the United States, for example. Don't we have a, a conservation land set-aside program where we're paying farmers subsidies not to use that land to, to grow crops? What if we told them, you know, just this year, use that farmland to grow wheat because we're really going to need it? Why wouldn't that work? Well, you, you're right. We have 21 million acres in something called the Conservation Reserve Program. This is a long-term set-aside program where producers put their land, agree not to plant a crop, plant a cover crop over it for up to 10 years. They get a payment for it. Some of that land that in the Conservation Reserve Program has been in there over 20 years. I mean, so we're talking about land that's been in conserving use for a long, long time. And again, a very short planning window that would have to be put in the ground really April, May. And the land is was put in the Conservation Reserve Program, frankly, for a reason. It's marginal land. This isn't land that's necessarily high yielding. It's land that to, to prepare it for production is going to take far longer than the next couple of months. And I think that even getting it out by the, the end of the year for a fall planted crop, a lot of that land is just not in position to actually come into production, certainly not this year. Spring wheat, where it would be actually available this year, you're talking about lands that are essentially been in drought all last year. This is the area that we had a very poor crop last year. It's still in very dry conditions. And the forecast, even in the next 30 days, suggests that the drought is likely to persist. Okay, Chad's first idea not going to work. How about other crops, though? Could we ask farmers to grow, I don't know, say less cotton and grow more wheat in, instead, crops you know that, that aren't necessarily needed for food? Yeah, I think the problem there is that all these crop prices are high. And so in certain areas, just corn and soybeans are going to look a lot more profitable to farmers. Even in other areas of the world, you think of countries like Turkey that grow wheat. They also grow cotton, and cotton prices are at record high levels. So trying to get you know, massive shifts into crops that are less profitable right now, I think is a very tall order, and that's, that's very tough. And then lastly, just trying to get people to grow crops where they're not currently growing wheat. Well, we talked about the investment that you need to bring in, the infrastructure, all of that. So it's fairly unlikely to see wheat outside the areas where it's currently being grown. Oh, for two. So if those won't work, what can we tell policymakers to do that might actually help? Okay, let me use the Hippocratic oath and do no harm. I think to the degree that farmers are purchasing things like inputs, let's don't make them any more expensive. So you told us earlier, one of the key inputs is, is fertilizers. Trade Talks listeners will know I have a bit of a thing for tracking anti-dumping and, and countervailing or these anti-subsidy duties. Well, it turns out the United States put anti-subsidy duties on phosphate fertilizers last year coming in from Russia, um, but also Morocco. So even if you can't, maybe for political reasons, take the tariffs off Russia, you could take them off of imports coming in from Morocco, and that might help reduce some of the input costs facing at least American farmers. Okay. What else aside from fertilizers? Okay, so there are a lot of policies that I think are counterproductive here insofar as food security is concerned. I would discourage the use of staple crops like wheat, corn, and, and things like vegetable oils being used for biofuels. I think it's time to relax. In the U.S., we have some heavy mandates on the use of, of ethanol and the use of biodiesel in our fuel supply, and we actually provide subsidies for biodiesel. A second one would be 
let's don't impose export restrictions. I think that was one lesson we got from 2010-11. All it does is exacerbate prices. So to the degree that we can keep markets moving and allow countries to source grain from other sources, then you know, we should allow that to move and not impose destructive export bans. Other things that can be done, some countries provide food subsidies. So these poor middle-income countries that we see, like Egypt, they provide a lot of to try to keep those prices down. I think that, that for a lot of those countries that can afford it, like Egypt, they're going to be paying a lot more to keep bread prices down. I think the best thing, obviously, is a bumper crop and hopefully that we can see some rebuilding of stocks. But the absence of Ukraine in this market is a hole that has to be made up. The longer that is prolonged, either you're going to have to get a supply response from somewhere to start rebuilding stocks, or we're going to be facing higher prices for uh, an extended period of time. And, And lastly, I think this is really key. I should have led with this, is that you know, for poor countries, they are so dependent on humanitarian aid. And understand, World Food Program has a fixed budget. They have to go out cup in hand looking for additional money. And so they are paying for wheat at much, much higher prices than they might have thought they were going to be budgeting for. So I think that they need to be fully funded and be able to meet humanitarian needs around the world. Let's go back to the the wartime sanctions on Russia and and Belarus that were seeing uh, the U.S., U.K., EU, and and other countries impose. And and this is going to be my my last question for you. As you look at these, are you worried about unintended consequences that policymakers in these countries should be thinking about as they're applying these, these sanctions? You know, it's a tough question, obviously. Sanctions are put on oftentimes because you want to get an effect. And so the more complete they are, the more effective they are in one sense. But I think there are some real concerns here. Food, obviously, I, I think that should be exempt. So exports of wheat, yeah, that might be really tempting to say, let's block Russia from exporting wheat, but the world needs that wheat. And it's just not rich consumers somewhere. They, they, we're really talking about middle-income, lower-income consumers. And I think that, that sanctions shouldn't apply towards food. Fertilizers is the next big one. I think they're there too. Unlike wheat, which is grown in a lot of places around the world, for some fertilizers, they're grown in a handful of countries. And as you say, there's already restrictions on export for a, a number of these basic building blocks for, for crop production. And I think that to the degree that they can be exempt, I think that would, would help because the concern is, obviously, is what the impact of limited fertilizer availability will be on production. You know, not so much in the developed countries. Farmers will pay for higher fertilizer costs. It's really in developing countries. And they're already, they're struggling with large yield gaps and trying to overcome that and and have decent crops and other things. That, I think, is a big concern. Yeah. As as I look at the treasury sanctions, for example, that have been put on, I I think they're cognizant of, of those concerns. And they're trying to design them in a way that could potentially exclude, you know, the, the concerns that you've raised. Yes, they're saying, you know, you can't interact with Russian, Belarusian, the central bank, the financial institutions, but they're trying to carve out, it looks like, exceptions for transactions that might have to do with food uh, or maybe things like fertilizer. So hopefully they're taking some of these ideas on board. So we covered a lot of ground. Let me, let me try to summarize. We're starting off at a pretty bad point for global food supplies like wheat, stocks to draw down on in times of a potential crisis are already low. 
prices are super high because of legacy problems from last year. Uh, they could get worse if energy prices and fertilizer prices remain high. Now we throw in a war that could act just like droughts and wildfires of the past that have further reduced food supplies from some of the world's largest producing and exporting countries. The world at this time needs to work together. We need to try to keep markets open and, and share through trade. And domestic policymakers will need to be ready to, to help out those that are inevitably hurt by these shortages, and especially those that are going to be most hurt. And we all need to keep our fingers crossed that we have some great growing seasons out there. And also, of course, an end to the war as soon as possible. Joe, thanks so much. Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Joe Glauber, now a senior fellow at IFPRI, but formerly the chief economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, as well as chair of AMOS, that agricultural market information system, that, that monitoring group that we talked about. And as always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. A huge thank you to all of the listeners who have said hello over the years and who have listened loyally. I really, really appreciate you. And, and also thanks to Chad, who is the geekiest, kindest, funniest, and just best co-host and friend I could really ever have hoped for. For me, first, Samea, personally, a huge thanks. I think you're the best, and you are welcome back on Trade Talks at any time. In terms of podcasting, you taught me everything that I know, which our listeners know better than anyone is, is still not all that much. But second, on behalf of our listeners out there, as well as everyone on Trade Twitter and anyone who has read your written coverage of the trade war over the last five years, a huge, huge thanks. You helped make trade great again. And so from all of your trade nerd friends, we wish you well in your new gig. So what is your new gig? Tell us about it. Oh, well, I couldn't tell you that. That would be the big, uh, you know, the big, big scoop. Um, but I think it is safe to say, if you would like to hear me doing podcasts in the future, then perhaps you might want to subscribe to The Economist's Money Talks podcast. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter. I'll be tweeting about my, my podcasting projects and also my, my written work for The Economist. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're at at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because no, I, no, I thought you said I could bring it back. I'm, I mean, after I'm gone, I'm still here. You can't do the the, the, the kind of terrible joke. Well, I'm still here. I'll cut. I'll cut it out. You're not going to steal money underscore underscore talks, are you? No, I think I think we'll be all right.